This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Hello, you're listening to Beyond the Ballot Box with me, Dashran Johan. Xavier Justo is a name that might ring familiar to anyone who's been following the 1MGB scandal closely. The former Swiss banker who worked for PetroSaudi obtained and leaked crucial documents to journalist Claire Rucastle-Brown, which then unraveled a web of high-level corruption and kleptocracy involving high-ranking officials, including, of course, former Prime Minister Najib Razak. Xavier was arrested in Thailand and even spent more than two years in what he describes as a hellish time in Thai prison. Some argue that Xavier shouldn't be hailed as a hero or a whistleblower because he didn't obtain nor leak the Petro-Saudi files for noble reasons, nor for the pursuit of justice, but for personal reasons, at least at the initial stages. But whether or not he should be hailed as a hero, one thing is for sure. His efforts and bravery were integral to getting to the bottom of the 1MDB scandal, which has since changed the course of Malaysian history forever. Xavier and his wife, Laura Justo, recently wrote a book titled Rendezvous with Injustice, detailing the struggles he and his family had to go through because of his whistleblowing. So joining me on the show today is none other than the man himself. Welcome to the show, Xavier. It's an absolute honour to speak with you. Thanks for the invitation. Thanks for having me on the show. Perhaps you can start by giving me a bit of background about yourself. What were you doing before Petro Saudi and 1MDB? So I am, I am a, a Swiss citizen, a Genevan resident. So at that time when I started uh, to look for a job, uh, I found a job in a bank in the 80s. And uh, I did my whole career in Geneva until I sold my company in 2009. And in 2009, I moved to, London, uh, to, to Asia, to Thailand, to be precise. How did the Petro-Saudi deal come about? So Petro-Saudi was created in 2005-2006 by Tarek Obeid and uh, one of the former sons of Saudi Arabia, Prince Turkey, bin Abdulaziz Al Saud. Uh, and from 2005-06 until 2009, it was almost a dormant company. They made a few deals in South America, which were a complete failure. So they had no activity, almost no employees, until the moment they went into the f- allegedly uh, uh, joint venture with uh, 1MDB, the Malaysian Sovereign Wealth Fund. I was a director of Petro Saudi from 2005 until 2009, mm-hmm. uh, when I left uh, Europe. For all these three years, of course, I wasn't paid. Uh, I had... This was a minor company. I just had to sign a couple of uh, documents on a yearly or monthly basis, pretty much. And uh, so I left, I left uh, Europe. And in February 2010, Tarek asked me to come to London to work for Petro Saudi. Uh, he said that he has done a major deal with the, uh, the Malaysian Sovereign Wealth Fund, 1MDB. And he sent me also a press release that was published uh, a bit earlier saying that um, the Malaysian company, 1MDB, and Petro Saudi were doing a joint venture together. So initially, I said I didn't want to go back to Europe, but uh, he convinced me. And with Laura, uh, we came back to, to Europe and to, uh, to London precisely in uh, February 2010. 
Right. So you joined PetroSaudi. Was it clear to you from the start that something was amiss or did it seem like just another job in a field you've been part of for decades? No, first it was my first time working for an oil company. Right. But uh, working for an oil company or working for a, for a finance company, it's pretty much at, uh, at my level, and don't take it bad, at uh, a director's level, you, you pretty much manage people. You don't manage a company or product. What I saw when I arrived in London, uh, I saw nice offices. Uh, I saw that Tarek bought uh, a flat for, I think, £8 million and Patrick a house for 6.5 million. And uh, the only statement we have at that time, and when I say we, I'm talking about myself, the head of the accounting department and the legal team, we just, for us, the official story, and the only story that we saw during my time is that 1MDB sent $300 million to GP Morgan. Right. There was never any kind of mention or document relating another 1.5 billion to to Kutz. That was something that nobody knew except Tarek Obeid and Patrick Mahoney. This joint venture was maybe major news in Malaysia, but I think it's almost nowhere to be seen on the on the, the European newspaper. I think there was probably just a press release on Bloomberg, but it was not major news. And again. Uh, for us, when I say us, except Tarek and Patrick, it was a 300 million deal, which is a big deal, but it's not a billion dollar deal. Uh, they spend a lot of money. But again, it's oil business. You have commissions. So you may think that was their commission, the, 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 the two flats that they bought or the houses. Uh, I didn't. I mean, I saw a lot, some money going around. There were uh, hiring private jets. They were like uh, hiring a yacht, spending a lot of money. But again, something is to have some doubts. That's easy to have doubts. You say, okay, before he had no money, now he has a flat. Maybe he made some extra money. And something else is to have the proof. Right. And they were quite smart with that because all of this money that was sent to Joe Lowe's account in Kutz was never mentioned, included, or in any way, shape, or form related to Petro Saudi. It was only the Malaysian side that sent the money that should have known right. where the money was going. For us, inside Petro Saudi, except the two leaders of the gang, we received officially $300 million from, from 1MDB in the GP Morgan's account in Geneva. And that was the working capital of the joint venture, which was not a joint venture, by the way, but... That was the official only documents, paper, and story that we had. But why did you leave the company? Was it because you sensed something was amiss, something unethical was happening, or because you had a fallout with your friend? So, for me, when I, I left the company because of of personal disagreements with Tarek Obeid, mm-hmm. um, there is there is a saying that when people get rich, they become crazy. <laughs> you need to have the initial seed on you, and they had the initial seed. So they become completely crazy. It was a partying nonstop. When I say nonstop, it's on a daily basis. 
and I was very happy with Laura, who now is my wife, who was my girlfriend at the time. So I didn't want to participate in the, this craziness. So can you talk to me a little bit from your point of view? What were you looking at when you talk about excesses and parties? When you talk, and I don't want to, to make people listening to feel uh, shocked, but the reality, probably millions have been spent in prostitutes and in, in drugs. Malaysian people's money have been spent by Tarek Obaid and particularly in drugs and prostitutes. Right. And uh, I'm not judging. If you make your own money with a legal job and you want to spend that money with Russian models, I'm not judging. I know, I'm no one to judge. But using stolen money, money that was, that was supposed to be used to buy, I don't know, to, to, to build uh, an hospital or school, schools, that's a different attitude. It's a different attitude to steal money from poor people to satisfy your vices. That's a different level. So you saw people spending absurd amount of money on ridiculous parties and excesses. What was the last straw for you? It, it started when Tarek was go, started to treat me like he was treating some of these like parasites. Mm. Because when you have money, you have people around you just like bloodsuckers. So he had a few ones around him. So he start, He tried to start with me, and he, he can't work with me. I never needed Tarek. I mean, I asked. He, he asked me to go back to work there, and I wanted to to feel the experience. But I was not satisfied. It was. It's not. It was not a life that I enjoy seeing those two guys uh, spending money like this. So you remain suspicious after leaving, right? What made you want to continue keeping tabs on what was going on in the company despite leaving? Because you could have easily been, this is ridiculous, I'm out, and then just move on with your life. Why do you still keep an eye out? So what happened when I resigned? So for, first we had to formalize my uh, severance package because I left everything in Asia, so I didn't go to London for the, 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 the sake of, of Tarek. So that was something that was pretty much done. And also, when I went to Geneva a couple of weeks later, I did something which I don't regret at all. So I asked the IT guy of Petro Saudi, who was my friend, who obviously now is not my friend anymore, so if I could get a copy of the server of Petro Saudi. And I told him, and I, I said this story many times, it, it is true. If one day there is a problem, if one day, because there were big numbers, big transfer, if something happens, if there is a, a financial scam inside all of this, I was not expecting the magnitude of the scam. I just want to have a proof that I didn't participate to that, that I didn't take any money, that right. I was not involved in structuring the deal, in creating these offshores, these Seychelles companies, these Bahamas, Bermudas, and so, uh, uh, and so on. So I took that as an insurance it turned out that it was used for another purpose with other results. But that was the initial thought was to have a kind of insurance. If one day there is a problem, I just want to prove that I had nothing to do. Because there were quite big numbers, big transfer around the world. Right. Um, how did you end up with that important hard drive with, you know, I think 200,000 emails? 227,000 emails. That is a lot. It's a huge number. How did you even go through them to find the, this important information? So I'm not an IT guy. <laughs> so when you plug an hard drive with 90 gigabytes and 227,000 emails, you press start <laughs> on your computer. You can go for a lunch right. and come back and the, the, the computer is still like trying to run. So 
after you find them, there are some cheap programs and it helps you. It, okay. Even now, if you run the program instead of eight hours, you need a couple of hours just or an hour to have the, the system running because it's a lot of information right. to absorb. And again, I'm not an IT guy. Maybe an IT guy will tell you this is bullshit. I can do it in five <laughs> minutes. Maybe. I have no idea. But I mean, I was living in Thailand and from time to time I was opening the file, finding a document. It kept my mind on that, but it was, I mean, I was building a, a hotel there. At one stage, Laura was pregnant. So it was really once in a while, maybe a Saturday morning when you have nothing to do or you think about there is nothing or the TV is not working. So let's, let's have a look. And I was, it's pretty much, it started like this. Why did you move to Asia? Because, I mean, it's, it's, with Laura, we had, we, we did a travel we had in 2000, end of 2008, I think. Mm. And uh, we love Thailand. We enjoyed Thailand a lot during the holidays. And uh, we had some discussion about why not leave Geneva and and the greatness of Switzerland and try a new experience. That's how we decided to go to, to Asia. On the show with me today is Xavier Justo, 1MDB whistleblower and author of the book titled Rendezvous with Injustice. After the break, I ask him what he went through in Thai prison. Keep it here on Beyond the Ballot Box, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Beyond the Bell Box. I'm Dafrin Johan, and on the show with me today is Xavier Justo, 1MDB whistleblower and author of the book titled Rendezvous with Injustice. So Xavier, another important figure that many Malaysians are familiar with the name, um, very important in this 1MDB saga, is the journalist, prominent journalist Claire Rucastle-Brown. She's the founder of Sarawak Report. How did your worlds collide? I think it was May or June 2014. I got a call from a British number. person was Claire Castle-Brown. She introduced herself, saying she was a journalist fighting corruption in Malaysia. And uh, she saw that I may have information. And I told her, if you come around Bangkok or Koh Samui, I'll, I'll be pleased and glad to talk to you. So that's what happened. She came to visit me. I think it was June. I may be wrong a couple of weeks, but time is passing and my right. memory is fading. I'm, I'm aging. So so she came. We got along very well. And until today, I talked to her yesterday. She's one of, she's a very good friend. It's one of the people I respect the most in, in this planet. She's all about integrity and fight against corruption. So we started like this. She, she told me, you have information. I said, I have a huge data about Petro Saudi, 1MDB, or the story, but it's a gigantic amount of information. So we run through the, the computer, but like fishing, uh, <laughs> just by coincidence, All we right. found a couple of documents that I gave her. And as I said many times, I, we have to be totally honest and frank. Uh, she told me what I want for the data. And I said, Claire, Petro Saudi is owing me $2 million. And uh, if I give you this data, I have some feelings that I may get some troubles. I wasn't expecting the kind of troubles that <laughs> I went through. But uh, and I said, it's not about the money. And again, I said that many times. If I wanted to sell those data, it was the story of the one MDB Petro Saudi deal. I'm quite convinced having the, the email of Jolo and other people, I could have tried to get more than my two million. Probably something that was worth a few tens of millions. 
So she, she took a little bit of time. Meanwhile, Laura was pregnant. My son was born in October 2014. So it was something that was completely out of my mind. And in February, yes, it was February 2015, uh, she called me and asked me if I could go to Singapore uh, to meet a guy that was interested in talking to me and maybe buying the information. So I went to Singapore with Claire and there were two people that uh, people of Malaysia, you, you know them well. One is Oketat and the, the other is Tongkoi Ong, the, the, the owner and the, the CEO of the, of the Edge. So we spent the day talking there, showing what was inside the file. They, they explained how the, this 1MDB corruption machine was working, that they knew, but they didn't have the evidences. And I had the evidences, but I didn't know exactly how it worked. Right. So with their information with, and with my evidences, they, they had a case. So I gave them to Claire and to them the data. And uh, they had an IT team, obviously. They were better than me. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, but Because, again, I mean, if I gave the data to anybody right. without expertise, you, you can't can, make it right. work. You, you need to be a high level to treat right. to, uh, these hundred thousands of emails. Mm -hmm. So going back to the to that, so I gave them the data, and Claire published the first article, the eighth of the century. I don't remember if it was end of February or early March, and that's how the. What what was going through your mind at the time? You know, especially when you're meeting Claire Rucastle Brown for the first time, and then she's saying that okay, this could be some very vital information. Um, were you thinking about who you were going up against no. potentially, the potential consequences, any of that? I mean, I, I'm not the smartest guy on earth, but I'm not that stupid. If I if I had realized, I was stupid in a way, obviously. If I had realized that I was going to f be involved in one of, or not maybe the, the largest financial scam ever, the largest case of kleptocracy in the U.S., I would have taken some other precautions. But I didn't realize that, and I was quite happy and proud to make this gesture. It's not because you do something which is great and that has to be done that you have to do it in any ways. You have to think, and I didn't think. It was very, I just I needed to go back to my, to my home country, Switzerland, to do that through a lawyer or anybody else not related to me, and things would have been differently. But you can't go back in time, so. When, when did you realize that you are taking on this monster um, of, like you said, the biggest financial kleptocracy scandal in the world? At this moment, <laughs> it's very clear. It's one on the internet. I read the article of Claire. Because first we sought her, we discussed, and she did what she wanted to do because that's her job. It's not me, sort of me to say how to do her, her job. First I saw that she was going to do it step by step, but she went ballistic with the first article. But again, I was living in, uh, in Koh Samui, and I, I, I had the feeling I was immune in Koh Samui because Malaysia and um, Thailand had not great relationship. There is this dispute on the border in the south. One is a Muslim country, pretty much. The other is a Buddhist country, pretty much. And I said, okay, I'm safe. It's okay. It's, uh, and I was also looking at the European newspaper, and the story was not big at the beginning. So I said, okay, it's, 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 a, it's, a, biggest, it's a great scandal. It's a big scam, but it is pretty much located around Asia. So... 
and I'm, I'm safe in my small island, enjoying life. <laughs> uh, my baby was born. I was the happiest guy on earth. And I said, okay, nothing has happened in a couple of weeks or months. It is, nothing is going to happen. I was wrong. I was very wrong. Before your arrest, were you um, already approached by people? Did you already have to start looking over your shoulders? Were you threatened and things like no, that? No, no, not at all. Right. I feel, I felt, sorry, totally immune. Wow. And then it just happened. So talk, talk to me. How, the, what led to the arrest on June 20th, 2015? What were you doing at the time? So Laura went to Geneva with our son just to be introduced to the family. And I was supposed to go to join her some days in, in July. So the 20th of June, 2015, I was expecting the immigration police. Because every year in Thailand, I don't know, in Malaysia, maybe it's the same. You have to renew your work permit. And uh, we did that a couple of times. We, usually before that, we had to go to the immigration police, uh, to the closest city. But there they, they called me the two days prior to that saying, we go to your place. It's easier and we'll check the, the hotel. Right. Said, okay, so be it. Why not? It's, it's, it makes sense. Right. So I, in the morning, I did my sport. I took my shower. And it was like early afternoon. It's like yesterday. You know, like <laughs> watching a movie again. Right. So I was like in my beautiful house, hotel, almost completed. I was overlooking the swimming pool, the tennis. Uh, the, 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 I mean, the master of the world. And I, the maid called me, hey, Mr. Justo, Mr. Justo, uh, there are, the police is coming, the immigration is coming. This, she said immigration because I told her, tell me when you see the immigration. Right. And I looked through the window and I saw six, six or 10 cars, like 15, 20 people coming. And my first thought, and like yesterday, it's, wow, since there is a military regime, they are taking the work permit very seriously. And right. Oh, so you were still at yeah. that point, think you yeah. were completely clear of yeah. the whole 1MDB yeah. thing. Wow. They, were, they were dressed civilian. Right. Well, why not? Maybe right. they want to look around. Right. So they were coming towards me. I once said, hey, Mr. Just, how are you doing? I said, maybe I know him. I don't remember. So he put his hand, I put my hand, but in, in the blink of an eye, I was like handcuffed and inside the house. And the guy came, the, the, uh, one of the, 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 the guys, 50, 60 years old, uh, had a piece of paper that he wanted me to sign. And I said, I'm not going to sign something I can't read. Not in my country and not in, in right. Thailand. So, of course, obviously, after a couple of minutes, he, by magical, he spoke English. <laughs> And he showed me a paper in Thai again. I said, I'm not going to sign this. I don't understand your, your language. I mean, so we went to the police, local police station. And that moment, of course, by magic, by magic, he had the, the same paper in English. And uh, it was, uh, I had to say that I was guilty or whatever offense. And I said, I'm not, I'm not signing. I need my lawyer. I couldn't reach my lawyer. That happened. So the police sent me two lawyers. We were not really very helpful in the case. All right. So you initially refused to take a deal and confess, yeah. but later you changed your mind. Yes. Why did you change your mind? It's very easy to understand, believe me. So this is, I'm in Koh Samui when this arrived. The next day we are, we are going to Bangkok mm -hmm. because allegedly the offense was committed in Bangkok. The, the alleged offense was attempted blackmail. And the lawyer said, don't worry, in Thailand, you don't go to jail for that, even if you did it. And I didn't. Right. But so I was quite, I had my wife through the loudspeaker saying, 
Tomorrow we are in Bangkok. Don't worry, I sign. I'll be back home in the evening. Again, big mistake. So we arrive. I don't, I don't want to, to spend hours but describing that, but I'm transferred to Bangkok. I'm offered a deal. Cooperate with us or spend nine to eight days in this particular prison and this particular cell. A cell in Thailand, and I don't know how it works in Malaysia. Mm -hmm. I, I hope I will never know. You sleep on the ground like a dog. No, not even a dog. I have a dog. He has a mattress. So you sleep on the, on the ground. They give you three blankets that are washed probably every month or twice a month. They smell like death. So you sleep naked because it's so hot. You sleep on the ground. You have the body of your neighbor touching you. Anyway, you have just to Google to Google uh, Thai prison pictures, and you will see this is the reality. Is a prison never was intended for the well-being of prisoners. That's I understand. I can live with that. But there are levels of inhumanity, and that's I don't think you can go farther than that in inhumanity. Right. The moment I realized was when I pretty much accepted the deal. I said, they are, you're going to spend the... Because for the first week, I really thought, and I think I hope to die. Because of the level of inhumanity, there is, as I said, you sleep on the door, uh, on, on the ground, you have no space, you sleep naked with 30 people around you naked. There is a hole in the, in the, in the ground where you, with a, um, a bucket of water, you have 50 people washing themselves. You will cut, but themselves, masturbating, doing whatever all night long. So the first week, I think, if I remember, I said, please, God, don't wake me up tomorrow. But you adapt. You think about your wife. You think about your son. You think about your friends, your family, your mother. And you say, okay, one day more. And one moment you reach 30 days. And you say, Jesus, I made one month in this hell. And after you reach 100 year, days, you say, and you still, oh, because in the Thai prison, there is, it helps for the prisoners. You have rumors of amnesty almost every month. You get an amnesty for the cremation of a monk. You'll get an amnesty for the new moon. You get, that never happens. I got two amnesty for the king's uh, birthday and the king's right. death. But this hope of amnesty is filled permanently. But nonsense is that the, uh, they saw a black cat uh, under the moon that is the meaning of an amnesty. I mean, it, people are big, they are crazy. You have nothing to do in a Thai prison. You read, you smoke, and that's it. So that's, that's feeding this craziness about rumors, rumors, and rumors. So you reach 100 days. What happened? You survive. You saw your wife. You know she, that she is here for you, that she's fighting for you. You have news from your mother, friends. So you have to fight. If you don't fight for your family, if you don't fight for your wife, for your son, for your mother, you don't fight for anybody. And you reach one year, and that's, that's a hard moment. Right. One year of your life taken away for just being a messenger. I didn't participate to the crime. I made no money about with this crime and with any crimes. And uh, one year, and that's, that's heavy on you. It's a year of your life. It's not more, you don't speak in days anymore. Mm -hmm. It's you live pretty much 80 years on average in Europe. It's a big number of your life. And after at that moment, they 
started to, uh, we had an amnesty after a year on something that reduced my time for three years to two years. Right. So when you made, I have, I have make a year, you have less than a year remaining. You see the light. You know, you're hoping to see the light. And, uh, and at that moment, Switzerland intervened. They knew I was a victim. So they were visiting me almost on a weekly basis so that because Laura had to, had to, fl to flee Thailand. I was alone there with a couple of friends and the embassy was take, really, when I say taking care, is, I just mean visiting you. Right. You are so alone in a prison. My family and friends are 10,000 kilometers away. So you are alone. I had on, on average a visit, uh, one visit every two weeks. You are alone. Thai prisoners, they are visit on a daily basis. So this feeling of loneliness by chance was sometimes taken away by, by the Swiss authorities. And what was your family going through at the point? Because obviously there's that very real, direct pain that they were probably feeling, and you can talk to me about that, where, you know, my husband, uh, my son, so on and so forth, uh, you know, it's in jail right now, in 10,000 kilometres away from me. But on the other side, there's also the, the fact that, you know, the world today recognize you rightfully so as someone who did something amazing without you and many others like you who knows what Malaysia would look like today but at that time there were obviously serious efforts to paint you as the criminal right as far as some people and some media were concerned that was the narrative I mean I was inside the prison no access to when my wife right. had to leave because she was threatened of being arrested and threatened of, of having our son sent to a Thai orphanage. So she had to, to leave me alone. And I was totally, I was pushing her to do, to do so. So I had no information. There is no newspaper in a Thai facility. The only TV channels were the one authorized by the military regime. Right. So I had no news, no, no, no ideas. I, we could smuggle some letters from time to time. So just knowing that she was okay, she, she never mentioned what she was going through. Uh, I knew she was safe in Switzerland and that was good enough for me. I didn't know any details because you can't pass long letters. But I knew she was safe in Switzerland with my son and nothing else mattered. So you were extradited to the Switzerland, um, your home country. What happened next? What happened in your home country? So people think that when you are out of prison, life is beautiful. Right. And it starts like nothing happened. Life is beautiful because you are surrounded with people that you love and that loves you. But it's a different life. My life will never be the same. And has never been the same as before. For the good or for the bad, I don't know. But even seen, being seen in Switzerland as a, as, a, as a good guy, as a guy with morality, or with a sense of uh, integrity, uh, it was impossible first to find a flat. Because we had even people saying, uh, we don't want to rent you the flat because we know where you are. Maybe there will be a car bomb. Uh, unable to find a job. Because uh, even, the, even being seen as a good guy, I had job interviews, and uh, I was always waiting but for the, what I call the but moment. We love you, you are good, you are great, but, but you are a repetitional risk, <laughs> but we have partners that don't want their name involved in this, and so on. So, yes, it's a different life with more struggles, more battles, but uh, it's either you keep on fighting or you give up. And you can't give up when you have a lovely wife and a son of who is now turning nine soon. It's absolutely ridiculous that you can get awards but struggle to get a job. 
Yeah, I'm going next. Uh, in a couple of weeks, I'm going to the U.S. to receive an award for, for integrity or, or, or fighting corruption. The, the worst of that is that in Switzerland, I am still under investigation for industrial espionage because I gave the data to an external party. I don't care. I'm quite proud. that If they want to sentence me, uh, just go for it. I'm proud of the award I will get. I found this under investigation pathetic and ridiculous. There is nothing I, I can do and there is nothing I want to do. They want to, to, to sentence me. I mean, I really, I shouldn't say that. I don't care. I'm wondering what went through your mind when the results of the 2018 Malaysian general elections was announced. Because you're not a Malaysian. You, uh, per, you, know, you didn't grow up following all these political parties and whatnot. But somehow, it, your story is directly linked to the 2018 general elections and, and what happened. You know, you, you are tied to Najib in that sense. Um, what went, was going through your mind on that night? So for us, it was the morning. Yes. And I do remember <laughs> this day very specifically because I had a meeting in the morning with a guy and uh, we started to get the, the result online. And uh, at the very beginning of the day, Najib was leading and Matthew was uh, was like not that far away, but not that close. So we're not very optimistic, even though we got we received a few calls from people in Malaysia saying that they, they were very op optimistic because they had result out of the pools in some places and it looks good. But I, I mean, I really even remember t telling a few of them, you're dreaming, which is good. It's good to dream. And at one stage, I do remember precisely, I was still at that meeting, and the, the results were getting narrowed. And I told the guy, I have to go home. <laughs> and uh, I joined my wife and we watched that on my computer. And the moment we knew Mahathir won, I mean, I said that and it, it seemed very strange because we are not in Malaysia. But we cried because it was, for all the suffering that my family had to go through, it was not a reward, but it was a kind of justification. At least what we have been through is benefiting the world and is benefiting Malaysia. So we were, I mean, we were very, very touched with the with the outcome. After all these years, do you finally feel vindicated? I've never, I've never been looking for for vengeance. I mean, I strongly believe in the in the in the rule of law. I I strongly believe that if you commit a crime, you go to prison or you pay a fine, depending on the crime, of course. And that's, that's the only thing that we want, my wife and I, we want justice. Justice for the money that has been stolen from poor Malaysian people, for the manipulation that my wife suffered, for the, 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 the fact that her father was the reprieve of his son company for um, 18 months. They stole money, they manipulated the justice, um, they did... They, I mean, they, they, they have so many charges that, that I don't... I mean, in Switzerland, Patrick Mahoney and Tarek Obedi will be sentenced probably before the end of the year. And I just want them to be sentenced accordingly to their crime. It's not a personal revenge. I don't believe in personal revenge. That's easy. That was good in the, the 17th century when you were setting your matter privately. <laughs> I mean, we have a system of justice. And I think it's time also for Switzerland with... 
which has been giving lesson to a, a lot of countries in the world. Um, but we have been very lazy with financial crimes. I think it's time for Switzerland to show the world that, yes, now we are fighting financial crimes and that a white-collar crime is a crime, is not a non-event or pretty much a non-event. Those people, they're white-collar criminals. And there is a tendency for people to say, ah, it's a financial crime. It's, it's a financial crime has consequences that are not direct, but indirectly. And as a Malaysian, you should know, people have died because of the 1MDB. I have been sentenced to prison, but that's not a major fact. But I'm quite convinced that an hospital could have been built with this in some places where there is no medical facilities. And the mother probably has lost a baby because of that. They have to be punished. Just before we wrap this conversation up, you have a book, um, very exciting. It's called Rendezvous with Injustice. Where are you right now? You know, um, a lot has happened. How do you reflect and how do you look forward to the future? That's a good question. I'm living, uh, we are living as a family, a very complicated situation. As right. I said, unable to find a job, but being seen as hero, Laura and I, uh, she she's an extremely powerful figure in this story. But uh, how is it going to end? I don't know. I'm full of hope because I have to. I'm an optimist guy by nature, but I have a son of eight years old. Right. So he needs his father for lo a long time before he could take, he will be able to take care of his old father. So I don't know. First thing that I want to know, because I want to teach my son some lessons that we have suffered. It's, we are still suffering as a family, but I don't want to, to, to make pity to to the audience, if you do something good in life, if you suffer and there is a good outcome, it's worth it. If you fight for something good and there is no result or bad outcome, it will reflect on edu the education of the future generations. So we are, I mean, I hope that with so many evidences in Switzerland, I can't believe that there will not be sentence. And that would be a victory, not as a personal revenge, but to see Switzerland finally being active against fighting financial crimes. And for us, we'll see. I mean, I still have two hands, two legs, a brain that is working quite properly. And if I have to live a low-level life, finding new jobs every other month, so be it. There are things you can't fight. I don't believe, I believe a little bit in destiny, but I believe there are fights that you cannot win. I cannot empty an ocean with a spoon. Regardless of how motivated or as good as I am, there are things that you can't do. If people don't want to give me a stable job, I'm not going to, to, to beg for money. I will find an activity. Xavier, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for your bravery, which helped change the course of Malaysian history. Thank you for having me with you. Thank you very much. That was Xavier Justo, 1MDB whistleblower and author of the book titled Rendezvous with Injustice. The book is available in Garab Budaya and all major bookstores. If you missed any part of our conversation, you can also check the show out on podcasts. We're available on the BFM app, bfm.my, or pretty much wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Dashran Johan, and this has been Beyond the Ballot Box, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.